Would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the door, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. John 20, 24 through 29. This is God's word. Lord, we come to you today and we just, we pray for guidance and peace. Lord, we ask that you be our great provider and be the one that we know we can trust, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. All righty. Today, we are continuing in our series, Pilgrims and Strangers, an anthology for seekers, skeptics, and saints. And when we began this series, I told you that each of these categories of people, seekers, skeptics, and saints, exists within every single one of us. And that I've seen at different points in my own apprenticeship to Jesus, each of these in me. Now, if we were honest, we are often a mixed bag of motives, emotions, and thoughts. I love this quote by Brennan Manning where he says this, when I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I am a rational animal. I say, I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. <laughs> and I love, I love the honesty of his confession. And like Thomas, like, our, like ourselves, like Brennan, Thomas is also a mixed bag. Now, can we be honest? Our boy Thomas gets a bad rap, right? Everyone knows him as what? See, I didn't have to say it. Y'all already knew, you know? And so, like, to have that kind of reputation is kind of lame, if we're honest, right? We're taking one scene of this guy's life and giving him a nickname for it when it's not the sum of all of his life. You see, when we read the scriptures, we read ourselves on the right side of scripture. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're always the faithful ones. Like, when Jesus' disciples don't understand, we're like, Psh, idiots, how don't you get it? Jesus said so clear he's going to die and rise again, right? It's like the Pharisees come along and like, y'all guys are lame. We're with Jesus, right? Like we're always on the right side of things. But a more honest reading of scripture would say 
we're often not on the right side of things. We're often the Pharisees. We're often the stubborn Israelites. We're often you fill in the blank, right? We always see ourselves as the hero of the story and on the right side of things. With a more honest reading, here's what you'll come to realize. You are Thomas too. I am Thomas too. Today, I want to talk about doubt, and I want to talk about what we do with it. And to do this, we're going to go through this scene in the life of Thomas. Now, as I launch the word doubt into the room, there are a couple of reactions that can come up for us in our minds. One is to indulge our doubt. The other is to demonize our doubt. Os Guinness says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which Christians are inclined to fall when thinking about doubt. On the one hand, there are those who are theologically liberal tend to be too soft on doubt, lionizing such notions as ambiguity and uncertainty and verging on a spiritual permissiveness that becomes a slipway to unbelief. On the other hand, those who are theologically conservative tend to be too hard on doubt, demonizing the dire consequences of unresolved doubt and verging on a spiritual perfectionism that leaves doubters in such a state of guilt or despair that they dare, they dare not acknowledge their doubts to others or even to themselves. In short, we can indulge our doubts. We cannot see the danger that it can be, and it ultimately leads us down a path that ends in unbelief. Or we can demonize our doubts, which leads us to often suppress them, stuff it beneath the surface, not realizing that not dealing with our doubts leaves us vulnerable to the same fate of unbelief. In my pastoral life, I have seen both. I've seen those who indulge their doubts. They, they allow their doubts to fester. They sit in the place of doubt. They have no interest in coming out of that place, and it ultimately leads them to a place of unbelief, often looking like something like deconstruction. I've also seen those who are unwilling to acknowledge their doubt and just kind of stuff it and the whole fake it till you make it kind of motto, but their fate is the same. Because when the trials and struggles of life come their way, they have no paradigm for the deep questions of their soul, and they, too, deconstruct. I've seen each of these play out. Tim Keller says this, A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. If we are not to indulge or demonize our doubts, what are we to do? In short, we are to deal with our doubts. My goal today is to go through Thomas's story and we can develop a healthy view of doubt. But before we do that, we must clearly define what doubt is. Doubt is a feeling of uncertainty that often leads us open to, the, to a variety of questions. Doubt is wondering if there is anyone listening um, on the other side of your prayers or if you're just talking to the ceiling. Doubt is worrying as you go to bed, is there really life after death? 
Or is this just a story we tell ourselves to feel better about dying? Doubt is beginning to question the presence of a God who allows that car accident to happen. Tyler Staten defines doubt this way. Doubt is an experience in a world that you cannot reconcile with the story that you believe. Something enters into your world that does not fit your existing story, so you do not know what to do. Doubt cuts both ways, though. Doubt can uh, look like the stories that I just mentioned, but it could also look the other way. For someone with a paradigm without God, doubt is wondering if God actually speaks to people because that talk that the pastor gave today made me feel like he's been stinking reading my mail and that somebody here has been telling him all my dirt, right? Doubt is trying to reconcile how a doctor gave a clear diagnosis one week, but this community of followers of Jesus prayed, and now the cancer is gone. What do I do with that? Doubt is worrying that there's this pool you feel inside your heart drawing you to some obscure Jewish rabbi who allegedly rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, and you do not have an answer for why. Doubt cuts both ways. Now, I think it's important that we understand that doubt is not the same as unbelief. I think the biblical authors separate these two camps. There are those who doubt, and there are those who don't believe or refuse to believe. And this distinction is crucial because it is a matter of heart posture. John Drummond says this, Doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for, is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. Someone who doubts is someone who's wrestling with sincere objections. Someone who's in unbelief or refuses to believe doesn't care what evidence you have or things you experience or things they experience. They will never believe. Now, the other tricky thing about doubt is when we talk about doubt, we often think that doubt is limited to believing in God's existence. Now, that can be doubt, certainly, but that's not the only way that doubt comes to us. Doubt can be when you struggle to believe that God loves you. No, no, no. Not humanity. Not you generally speaking. You specifically. That you doubt that. Doubt can be that you worry if grace can actually cover your sin. The deep hidden things in your heart. Yeah, that maybe it works for somebody, but other people are better than me. Grace can't cover me. Doubt can be when you come to pray but walk away because why on earth would the God of the universe care about my workplace, an upcoming test, this pain in my left ankle when there's wars and famine and disease all over the world? Why would I bother him? You see, it's entirely possible to adopt a Christian worldview but still live not knowing the God you say you believe in. Doubt can come in many forms. Here's what we also must understand about doubt. Doubt is fundamentally relational. You see, at its core, doubt is always relational. Always. When someone enters into the place of doubt, it is always personal. Their issues 
are not with a set of ideas or values. It is with a God they may or may not believe is even there. That is who they begin to doubt. Every atheist, every agnostic, every person I have met with who does not believe does not disbelieve because of purely rational thinking. It is usually always some personal moment. Maybe the church hurt them, maybe a pastor hurt them, maybe God let them down, but one way or another, it's always personal. Even uh, the great atheists of our time tout the same reason when you poke and prod. You see, they seem to rail against Jesus particularly not all the other pantheon of gods that exist in our modern world. You don't hear anybody go on tirades about Allah or the Muslim faith. You don't hear them go on tirades about Hinduism or anything. It's always Jesus that has the center of their affections of disdain. It is always Jesus. Curious, do with that what you will. But doubt is always relational. You see, they don't believe because somewhere down the line often... God has let them down. Tim Keller says this, Doubt always masquerades as purely intellectual, but it never is. It is much more personal than that. Now, the side of this conversation, there's a side of this conversation, the atheist side, let's say, that would like to position themselves as rational or logical in their thinking. But if they're being honest, that is a dishonest disposition. Right, they like to tout themselves as simply there's no existence for God. You see, I have no reason to believe. You must give me a reason to believe. And that sounds nice. It sounds intellectual, but that's not the case. They like to frame the conversation as if it's belief versus reason. Like Christians and these other people who believe in a God are, are putting their trust in a belief. I have reason. But really what's happening is it's belief versus belief. At some point and in some place in the paradigm, they are putting their trust in a system of thought to make sense of the world that they live in. All of it at some point is a leap. All of it at some point is a jump. Whether it's a big bang or millions and millions of years of evolving or in a God who initiated the whole process, all of it is a leap at some point. Every belief system requires faith, an active trust that what I am believing in is leading me in the right direction. Now, but if I'm totally honest, there are very few Richard Dawkins of the world. You know what I mean? The people who are railing on God's existence entirely. Most people that I find that don't believe in God are just trying to live their life. They're just like going to Starbucks and trying to like have friends and make their way through this chaotic life. They're not railing against the God that is, right? There's very few of those people out there. Most people are just busy. Are just, their lives are just full. There's just other things pulling at their hearts. What we also must understand is that for almost everyone, doubt is inevitable. Michael Novak says this, Doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge that cuts through every soul. Everyone at some point will doubt in some way, shape, or form. The question is not, will you doubt, but will you stay in the place of doubt when you do? Now, <laughs> doubt... Um, is a part of the process of you coming to faith, right? If you grow up 
in the faith, at some point that faith has to become your own, and that often leads to a path of doubt. If you have no paradigm for God, at some point you were living in a place of doubt before and you're exposed to it and you wrestle through that to come to faith later. And as I explained before, doubt is not merely believing in the existence of God, but could be far more nuanced than that. Basically what I'm saying is this. If you have not experienced doubt, it's coming. It has a date for you. It's a blind one. You didn't sign up for it. You're just going to show up one day and guess what? You're on the date with doubt. And you're going to have to work through it. And so, why is it that we have to face doubt? Why is that inevitable? Well, first, we live in a culture of doubt. The air we breathe is filled with doubt. Dallas Willard says this, We live in a culture that for centuries now has cultivated the idea that, a, that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You could be, uh, you could be almost as stupid as cabbage as long as you doubt. The fashion of the age has identified mental sharpness with a pose, not with genuine intellectual method and character. I love that phrase, stupid as cabbage. If somebody told me that, I'd be crushed. <laughs> you know, it's like, if we're talking like it's cabbage of all the vegetables, man, that's rough. But all right, I digress. We live in a time called secularism, where the whole goal is to push the sacred out of the public square. We live in a time that is designed to eliminate faith. To put it simply, we live in a time where it's hard to believe, and the whole cultural tide is pulling everyone away from faith. And it feels like if, there's any, if there is any public acknowledgement of faith, it's always married to something. Right? A faith is always married to a culture war, or it's married to an ideology, or it's married to a political position. Nobody's just putting, CNN is not just doing things about uh, people doing silence and solitude in their houses, right? Any Christian or any faith that comes into the public square, square is always married to some idea, something they're holding on to, something they want to push forward. Um, our, our, our society is not really open to faith in the public square just as it is faith. And so, the water that we swim in is looking to drown any measure of faith. David Brooks says this, We are all fragile when we do not know what our purpose is. When we haven't thrown ourselves with abandon into a social role. When we haven't committed ourselves to certain people. When we feel like a swimmer in an ocean with no edge. If you really want people to be tough, make them idealistic for some cause. Make them tender for some other person. Make them committed to some worldview that puts today's temporary pain in the context of a larger hope. Emotional fragility seems like a psychological problem, but it, only, but it has only a philosophical answer. People are really tough only when they have taken a leap of faith for some truth or mission or love. Once they've done that, they can withstand a lot. This is the line here, guys. We live in an age when it's considered sophisticated to be disenchanted. But people who are enchanted are the real tough cookies. So if the question is not if we experience doubt, but when we experience doubt, it begs the question, what does doubt feel like? To do that, I want to jump into our passage. Verse 24 reads this. Now Thomas also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. 
you can see why Thomas deferred to Thomas and not Didymus just for, <laughs> for the name sound reason. How did Thomas get here? Where do we find Thomas? Well, we're jumping into the middle of the story, right? We haven't been going through John's gospel. And so we need some background here to help us understand. Thomas gets a bad rap. Amen, brother. Thomas gets a bad rap. And I think fairly so. I think in order to see Thomas clearly is to look at the sum of his life, not just a single moment, which we will do a bit today. Yes, Thomas doubted, but he also believed. There's a story in John 11. Jesus is wanting to head back to Bethany. Last time Jesus was in Bethany, things weren't good for him. There were death threats made on his life. And so Jesus tells his disciples he's going to go actually visit Lazarus, who is dying and or dead at this time. And he says, we're going to go back to Bethany. Now, would you willingly go somewhere you knew you had death threats? Logically speaking, no, right? <laughs> not really. I'd prefer not to be in the place where people want me dead, just as a matter of principle, right? Same thing for Jesus' disciples. Jesus is like, guys, we're going back to Bethany. Time out, Jesus, real quick. Remember last time we were there? They're like, hey, we want to kill you. Remember that? We shouldn't go there just for that reason, right? And so all the disciples are trying to talk Jesus out of it, except for one. You know who that is? Your boy Thomas, who says, um, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. When everybody else was saying, not a good idea, Thomas says, let's go even if it costs us our life. Doubting Thomas seems a bit unfair, don't you think? You see, this, uh, th this is where Thomas was before Jesus died. But then something happened that Thomas didn't know what to do with. The man he had put his trust in was suddenly crucified. Tyler Staten says this. Thomas was ready to die with Jesus. He wasn't ready to live without him. You see, John 20 opens up after the crucifixion. Thomas was devastated. He didn't have a paradigm for Jesus dying, and he had to be left behind picking up all the pieces. You see, in that morning, a rumor was floating around that some other disciples had seen Jesus risen from the grave. Thomas knew better. He wasn't going to put in his hope in some rumors. Thomas was a realist. He was drawn into a story and a hope that seemed to fail him. So he committed in his heart, not again. If Thomas was honest, he was crushed. And this is where we find Thomas, disappointed, devastated, doubting. You might wonder, why didn't Thomas get to see Jesus like the other disciples? The short answer, he wasn't there. Now, maybe it was just happen chance, or maybe when you enter into the space of doubt, doubt feels like isolation. In times of doubt, our, our instinct is to withdraw. Doubt can create the feeling that you are on the outside and that no one can relate to how you are feeling. And maybe this happens to you. You come in a Sunday gathering. You see people worshiping, crying, meeting with the Lord. And you're like, all I can think about is breakfast. Right? 
you see people having these moments of encounter, talking about they're hearing God's voice, and you're like, man, I was just hearing the really loud heater going off, right? I was not hearing God's voice. You know, what? I, I don't get it. And it begins to make you feel like you're on the outside. Like everybody's got a secret line to God, but you somehow dialed the wrong number. And you're not exactly sure what's happening, and that is incredibly painful. It's incredibly painful to feel like you're on the outside of what's happening around you. The painful feeling can often lead us not to the community of faiths that we find ourselves in, but to people who agree with our doubts and who affirm our skepticism. Because at first, it's comforting. Yeah, I felt the same thing. I thought the same thing. And at first, that community feels safe. But that community is ultimately powerless because they can't bring you out of the place of doubt. You stay there and you sit with them and you all sulk together and that in the doubt. We like to surround ourselves with the echo chamber of doubt, people who believe exactly what we believe already. And it confirms and it kind of alleviates the ache of being left out. Doubt also feels like disappointment. Can we name something? Jesus let Thomas down. I know, I said it. How did he? How could he? Jesus let somebody down? There's no way. And then the theologians are, well, actually, in God's providence and in his, you know, all this time out. When we talk about God letting someone down, we're not talking about his ultimate plans and purposes. We're not talking about the ark of redemption. We're not talking about how, you know, all things work together for good to those. Sure. Letting someone down isn't theological, it's relational. You, want, you, you had a friend who told you they were going to come to something important for you, and they don't show. They had a flat tire, the babysitter fell through, whatever. Regardless of however legitimate of a reason they weren't there, it doesn't change the fact that you still feel let down. There may be a totally valid reason why they weren't there, but you still feel empty. You still feel let down. If you feel a little uneasy about that still, I contend with you, read the Psalms. Read Lamentations. The whole thing is, where are you, God? You were supposed to be here. You were supposed to do this, and you did it. You weren't there. Now, again, the theologian in the room, but Jesus ultimately comes. Yes, but did that change the psalmist's experience? Being let down is never about an adequate explanation. It is always about a felt experience. It is always about a felt experience. The biblical authors had no problem leaning into this, and here's a newsflash to you as well. Jesus is secure in his lordship. If you feel let down by him, he's not like, oh, no, not them. I just got to explain. He's secure in his lordship. Jesus, in short, is comfortable letting people down because it always serves as an invitation to get to know him more. It always serves as that invitation. And so from the outside looking in, it would appear that nothing good ever comes from doubt because doubt feels like isolation. It feels like disappointment. But what if doubt was actually an invitation? What if doubt was an invitation into mystery, 
and an invitation into relationship with the living God. Rich Fiota says this, Doubt is not the enemy of faith. It is the ground out of which faith often emerges. Faith requires us to venture into mystery. There's no certitude in mystery. There is no relationship that is certain in your life. There's just not. There's some you feel might be, but there's no relationship that's certain. For example, my wife has my heart. Can I be certain she won't wreck it? Not really. At any given moment, she could just, you know, done for. See you later. I'm gone, right? She could. She totally could. I have no certainty that she won't break my heart. But you know what I do have? I have trust. I have trust that she won't because we've built that over time. Do I have certainty? No, but I do have trust. When we encounter doubt, it is an invitation to trust in the living God. There's a story about a guy meeting with Mother Teresa. His name is John Cavanaugh. Not to be confused with any other Cavanaugh's in the news a long time ago. Okay. Now, when the brilliant ethicist John Cavanaugh went to work for three months at the House of the Dying in Calcutta, he was seeking a clear answer to know how best to spend the rest of his life. And on the first morning, he met Mother Teresa, who, if you don't know, she's a gangster for Jesus. And, sh and she asked him, what can I do for you? Kavanaugh said, will you pray for me? She said, what do you want me to pray for? He voiced the request, the request that brought him thousands of miles from the United States. He said, pray that I have clarity. It's a prayer you probably have, huh? She says, no, I won't do that. <laughs> Why, he asked. She said this, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. Kavanaugh commented, you seem to have clarity about everything you do. <laughs> like, how do I get some of that? And she laughed. And she said, I've never had clarity. What I've always had is trust. So I'll pray that you will trust God. What if doubt, though not from God, can be used by God to bring about wholehearted trust? Eugene Peterson says this, the reason many of us do not ardently believe in the gospel is that we've never given it rigorous testing, thrown our hard questions at it, and faced it with our most prickly doubts. What if doubt can be used to further strengthen your belief? What if doubt is that invitation? Now, in our time remaining, I want to journey through the rest of the story of Thomas through the lens of doubt as an invitation into relationship. Now, the foundation of any relationship is honesty. And that is especially true with our relationship with God. Doubt is an invitation to first be honest. Uh, verse 25. So the other disciples told him, being Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Thomas names his terms. He's like, that sounds nice. Here's what I need. Again, he's a realist. He lays out his terms and conditions. 
You see, where many of us fail is what Thomas models well, and that he brings his pain to the table and names it before God. Does it always happen that whatever you ask God to do, he will do? No. But is the always first best step to be honest? Absolutely. I feel like, at times, we can sound like Thomas. You may have even had the kind of prayer where, like, God, if you could just do a miracle in front of me, I would never doubt again. Like, right, if you could just... (laughs) If you could just do this one thing, whatever it might be, then, Lord, I would never question you again. Thomas is a case study that that's not the case. He's seen Jesus heal lepers, miraculously feed 5,000 people with a schoolboy's lunch. Um, In John 11, saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And so much more that John says, if I wrote all the things that Jesus did, there would not be a book big enough in the world to fill it. He's got things for days and still he doubts because we misunderstand what doubt is about. Doubt is not about needing miraculous evidence. It's all about needing presence, needing Jesus near. And so Thomas is a case study that miracles aren't enough. We need nearness. We need Jesus close to us. What Thomas needed wasn't water turned into wine wine or miraculous multiplication of food. He needed to see the one in whom he put his trust. Now, the next thing is that doubt is an invitation to community. Verse 26 says, a week later, His disciples were in the house again, but notice this line, and Thomas was with them. What Thomas chose to do is even when everyone around him had an experience he did not share in, he still pressed into the community. The way out of doubt is always together so that those in the community can carry you in seasons of doubt. No one, I repeat, No one follows Jesus alone. You bring your doubt to community and watch how Jesus meets you there. Now notice, a week passes between when Thomas says, I got to see him and this moment. To be exact, it's eight days, but a week suffices. There's time in between. It's not that Tom said, Thomas said this, I need to see him. And Jesus is like, what's up, Thomas? Right there, right then. Boom, answer prayer, thank you. There's time in between. There's a prolonged waiting that has to happen to him. But here's what Thomas does. Thomas plants himself in community so they could be with him while he waits. Now, the biblical authors don't record for us all of the conversations, but I'm sure Thomas could be probably a little bit insufferable at that time. You know, everybody has seen the risen Lord except for Thomas, right? Everyone's like, dude, I swear we saw him. Yeah, okay. You know, dude, I'm telling you, he was here. We had breakfast. It was cool. It's like, dude, whatever. He still had the nail marks. It's like, I'll believe it when I see it. Like, that eight days was probably miserable for the other 11 disciples, right? Or the other 10 disciples at the time. And so I'm sure it was challenging, but they, but that's what community does, They help lift your arms when you feel weary. They believe on your behalf even when you don't. They carry you when you feel weak. 
community groups have been a godsend for real for me. There are times where I feel just discouraged, disappointed, maybe even let down. And I just get to hear about what God is doing in someone else's life. And it stirs me up. It literally puts courage into me. It encourages me to hear what God is doing in other people's life. To be in an environment where faith is cultivated builds faith. Faith begets faith. It just does. And being in a room where people are hungry and expectant for God begins to warm the coldest of hearts. That even if they feel like outsiders, the longing is, I want what they have. And that's a step in the right direction. And so being in community is the safest place for your doubts. It's the safest place to bring that forward. And here's what you'll find out too. Most people have had the exact same experience that you've had but you just had the courage to name it. You had the courage to say, does anyone else feel like this? Like right in the middle of praying, it's been like a good time of prayer, and then suddenly this fear washes over me. What if I've lost my mind? What if I'm just babbling in a room to a ceiling by myself at 6.30 in the morning for no reason? Like I could be asleep. That instantly comes in your mind, and then you're looking around the room, and everyone's still just praying. Okay, never mind. You know, it's like who's had that experience ever in their life? Exactly. Look across the room. You're not alone. You're not alone in that. And that's the gift of community, is it pulls you out of isolation. Next is that doubt is an invitation to encounter. It says this, though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. I love Jesus' entrance here. This has nothing to do with anything. But then she just shows up places, which is so cool. Doesn't use the door. is just there. And it's like, I don't know what you could possibly say that wouldn't startle somebody. Jesus goes with, peace be with you. But either way, I'd be terrified if suddenly he was just behind me. And my wife is a ninja in that same way. She just shows up into rooms. I don't know how she does it. Uh, but Jesus shows up, peace be with you. And Thomas gets to see Jesus, like, suddenly. In a moment, everything changes. He, one moment, he's with the other disciples. The next minute, Jesus is there. And I want you to notice how kind God is. Jesus does exactly what Thomas asked him to do. Did he have to? Certainly not. Thomas could have just gone off the testimony of his friends, but Jesus meets him with encounter. And he meets him the exact way he prayed to the sky that God would meet him. He just screamed it out loud. I have to do this in order to believe, Jesus says. Okay. And he does it. How incredibly kind is God. Jesus didn't have to do that, but he did just for Thomas. And this is what it tells us. Jesus is not afraid of your doubt. He welcomes it. He welcomes it. And he seeks to move towards you in it and to remove it from you. He says, this is what you need. Go ahead. Now, here's a cool painting. Uh, it's kind of hard to see with the light. I apologize. But I think you can see the light parts of it, which, if I can be totally honest, his finger in there really grosses me out about how unsanitary that probably is. It's like, did you even wash your grimy fingers, Thomas, before you just injected it into the side of our Lord? Nonetheless, 
Also, Thomas is like super old here, which unless that doubt did a real number on him, <laughs> it's probably not the case. He was much younger here. Um, but I think it kind of gets at what I feel when I see this painting is how intimate it is. Like there's no space between him and Jesus. He is just up close and personal into Jesus' space. And I think it kind of helps give uh, a picture of what that moment may have been like for Thomas to actually touch the body of our risen Lord and see the place where the wounds were. I think here the painting shows him as like still skeptical doing it, but I think there's no way Thomas did that without tears in his eyes, without just being left in awe and wonder at what was happening before him. I don't think he was like, was this even real? You know, like looking at it like a doctor. I think he was stunned at what was taking place before him and realizing how God is so kind to him. But doubt is this invitation to encounter Jesus. It is also an invitation to trust. Jesus says this to Thomas. After he's felt his wounds, he says this, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. It sounds easier than it is, right? Just stop doubting. All right, I didn't know you had to say that, you know? It's like when you're anxious and someone's like, stop being anxious. You're like, oh, thanks. I didn't know I could do that, but thanks for letting me know. Stop doubting. How? Well, it's an invitation to trust. Choosing to trust Jesus does not mean your doubts will instantly vanish. Trusting means putting my belief in someone even though I have doubts. That's trust. Is there certainty there? Absolutely not, but there's trust, and that's the invitation from Jesus. When I find myself in the posture of doubt, what pulls me out is reminding myself to trust Jesus. Those moments happen. The intrusive thought comes. Suddenly you're like, am I wrong about everything I've ever believed in my whole life, right? Those moments happen. But when they do, I remind myself, Jesus has been so good to me in life. He'll be good to me in death. I remind myself of the moments of encounter that I've had with Jesus that there is no secular explanation for. And I begin to doubt my doubts. I begin to be skeptical of my skepticism. And I begin to actively put my trust in Jesus. Stop doubting and believe. Here's what I'm confident of. If you find yourself in a season of doubt, if you ask Jesus to meet you, he will. Why? Because he's so kind. He is so kind. He just does. That's just like, there have been so many people I know who have been in moments of doubt, and God is just so gracious to just meet them like he did Thomas. And that's just his heart. That's his willingness. That's his loving kindness towards us. That's his grace. Is that even while we doubt, he moves towards us. Doubt is also an invitation to worship. Thomas sees Jesus, and he hears these words, stop out doubting and believe, and Thomas says this, my Lord and my God. Bible scholars are unanimous on this. This is the highest praise Jesus gets in all of the Gospels because Thomas both acknowledges Jesus' personal lordship over him and his divine nature as God. Thomas, in this moment, becomes a worship songwriter. These are the highest praise in all of Scripture. And think about whose mouth this comes from. 
the doubter in the community because the one who gives Jesus the highest praise. The doubter becomes the worshiper. Brothers and sisters, worship is how we move out of our feelings and into what is true. When we worship together as a community, you don't sing the songs because you feel them. You know what I mean? It's 10 o'clock. The coffee is kicking in, you know? And at that moment, you're not really cognizant of, like, Jesus is, you know, King of kings and Lord of lords. You're still waking up. But what you do is as you engage in worship and as you sing truth over yourself and over the community, it begins to shift things in your heart. And so an invitation is when you feel yourself plagued by doubt, just begin to worship. And when you do, truth being sung over you will alleviate the sting of doubt. Because you will remind yourself of what is true, not how you feel. And then your feelings will be interpreted by what is true, not the other way around. And lastly, Jesus, uh, doubt is an invitation to be blessed. Jesus says this, because you have seen me, you have believed. Watch this line. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. It is like Jesus breaks the fourth wall here. If you've ever seen Ferris Bueller, he just does this thing. He's like, blessed are those who, have, you know, who haven't seen and have believed. And he's like, is he talking? Yes, us. You are included in that. Wait, has anyone seen the risen Lord? Okay. We're all on the same page here, right? We're all on the same boat. We are these people. Doubt is an invitation, according to Jesus, to be blessed. He says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And this brings up the question, why do I believe? I believe because Jesus lived the most compelling life I have ever seen. And I have tasted and experienced his goodness. And there's no coming back from that. So, how are you blessed? First, bring your mixed bag to Jesus. Eugene Peterson says this, All of the persons of faith I know are sinners, doubters, uneven performers, which is a really gracious way to say that. We are secure, notice this, not because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure of us. And I invite you just to taste and to see that the Lord is good. Thomas Merton says this, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. I realize in this series as I've used that language of saint, you may feel uncomfortable ascribing that to yourself, right? It's like, you you know, how do you introduce yourself to people? Oh, I'm a saint. You'd be like, all right, dude, chill, right? It, it would feel a little uncomfortable to refer to yourself as that way. Well, one, it's biblical, so deal with that. But two, not that you have to start introducing yourself that way, but it is biblical. But two, it's a misunderstanding of what saint means. Saint for us has become to mean morally upright without flaw, uh, almost as like they float everywhere they go. They're so holy. Saint just means you've tasted and seen the goodness. Saint just means you've encountered Jesus and said yes. That's all that that means. What resonates in my heart now as we close is the words of a desperate dad. His son um, encountered seizures, and Jesus shows up. And Jesus' disciples were unwilling, uh, unable to heal his son. 
And so this man begs Jesus to heal his son. And as he does, he says these words, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I'm, I'm giving you what I have. It's not much, so can you help the rest of the way? And that is the most honest heart. Brothers and sisters, know this. Jesus is merciful to those who doubt. And in the scriptures, they, the, the scriptures call us to be merciful to those who doubt. And I'm reminded of a verse, Psalm, or Isaiah 42. It says this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out. Meaning Jesus is gentle. He's kind. And he meets you right where you are. Whether you are filled with doubt or filled with faith, Jesus meets you there. We're going to enter into a time of response. So if you would join me, if you're able, and stand to your feet.